0: Alright, good evening everybody. Good to have you out for Bible School tonight. You can open to Romans chapter 6. I'm going to get a couple things set up while you find that. And I've got a couple of announcements that I'd like to make before we get started. Uh, Remember that there is a Romans exam that you should have written by today. Now you still have time. Today is the last day. For that. So if you haven't done it, make sure you get the, the exam from Google Drive, and then you can fill out the exam and send it in through email uh, to the church email address. If you have any questions about it, feel free to contact the church phone, or uh, you can ask me personally about that. Also, uh, we have a Galatians exam that I told you about in the midweek last week, and that is due by April the 29th. So I didn't have the date in front of me Last uh, Wednesday, but I, I've, I've looked at it now. So, April the 29th. You do not have to wait until then. If you're ready to fill that exam in and send it through to the church email address, you're welcome to do so even tonight. That's perfectly fine, but you have until the 29th to write that. Okay, we're Romans 6 tonight, and I'm going to ask that you please bow your heads with me, and let's begin tonight with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for the privilege of getting together as much as we can with these other saints. Lord, our desire tonight is to learn. Father, we want to be fed. Please, God, we want to recognize Your presence in the room. And not just in the room, but in our hearts. We want You to have complete control tonight. Father, we yield to You. And we, uh, we desire, Lord, to grow through what we learned tonight. Lord, we want to apply it. Please help us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, Romans 6. And to me, as I mentioned this morning, this is one of my favorite chapters because of its practicality. Romans 3 and Romans 8, those are also some, to me, I would call them salient, very important chapters in the New Testament and in the entire Bible, for that matter. Those chapters are so packed with information information. Uh, chapter six. It is all. I mean, every verse is good, right? But chapter six, uh, it, it gives us some very practical thoughts about a very. I want to say a simple doctrinal truth. Um, it's there's really. I don't. I don't think it's a very deep doctrine that we're going to be studying tonight. This chapter, if I could give it a name, I would call it the the gospel applied, or maybe the applied gospel. However, you'd want to order that. Um, As far as an outline goes, to be honest, I tried and tried, and I'm sure that you can find some good outlines. Maybe some other preachers have have come up with them. For me, I, I see this chapter as going over two points. Dead to sin, alive to God. Now, Paul will approach that doctrinally. And then he's going to approach that practically. And he's going to bounce back and forth, back and forth between those two things. The doctrinal fact of the matter and then how we should apply that doctrinal truth in our daily lives. So in that sense, that's why I said I don't think it's super deep, but it is super important. Uh, Romans 6 and verse 1. What shall we say then? Now he's posing that question to what he just explained at the end of chapter five, and it would do us good to just remind ourselves quickly of what the point was at the end of that chapter. Chapter five, verse 20 in the middle, "But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Right? Sin reigned to death, grace reigns unto everlasting life, as you can see uh, unto eternal life, in verse 21. So where grace did abound, I'm sorry, where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. All right, with that fact in mind, what shall we say then? So what's the next step uh, next step? After establishing that fact, what do we do about it? Verse one, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, obviously, that's not the next step that Paul would have us take, nor would God have us take. Now notice in verse one, this is a very practical thing. How do we apply this truth, that we are under the system of grace, and that when we sin, there is enough of God's grace that it covers that sin. What do we do with that? Should we abuse it? Obviously not. Verse 2, God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Now, sometimes people ask about habitual sin. Is a Christian able to, to do that? Well, he certainly shouldn't. And we'll talk maybe a little bit more tonight about whether or not it's possible, but verse 1, shall we continue in sin? Should we make a plan to habitually sin? Now, re- you might remember back in chapter 3, Paul's enemies were saying, let us do good, or <laughs> I'm getting my thoughts backwards, let us do evil that good may come. And that, that was a case of Paul's enemies taking Paul's teachings too far, taking it one extra step in a direction that he did not intend. And it's a similar thought here. He's cautioning uh, the reader not to take that next step. Because we're under grace, because when we sin, there's plenty of God's grace to be manifested, does that mean that we should keep on sinning so that God can keep showing us grace? So, no, we should not plan to habitually sin. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid... How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Well, he's asking a a good question. It's a doctrinal matter that he's stating here. He's saying we that are dead to sin, that's a doctrinal statement. It's a fact. And then he's going to speak towards the practical application of that doctrinal fact. Because we're dead to sin, we should not live any longer therein. That's the proper conclusion that somebody should arrive at. Now starting in verse, well even verse 1, you can see it a little bit, but in verse 2 I want to make this clear that there's a comparison between standing and state. And it's going to run through this chapter consistently. Paul's going to bounce back and forth between the standing and the state. I know I've explained it before, I'm going to briefly touch on it again to make sure we're all on the same page. When we're talking about standing, We are talking about an immutable fact, that is an unchangeable fact. It is the way a situation or a person is. Now the state is the exact opposite, I don't want to say exact opposite, it should go together, but the state, it is changeable, you see? So in that sense, it is the direct opposite. The state, that can vary from day to day, from action to action. The illustration that I often use is to say that I'm a man. Now that's not gonna change, amen? That, that is a solid fact. That's a biological fact, it's a scientific fact. Now if I don't take care of myself, if I eat too much and don't exercise, I'm gonna be a fat man, I'm gonna be an unhealthy man. So the adjective, right, that's the state, that's the condition that I'm in. That can change depending on how I live. But the fact of the matter is, I'm always going to be a man. Now, the same is true if I want to use the illustration of a child of God. Once you are born again, you are a child of God. That fact is immutable. It cannot change. You are in His family. And God, once you come to Christ, He says, I'll in no wise cast you out. You are in the family of God. Now, you have a choice as a child of God. If you're obedient... You can be a blessed child. If you're a disobedient child, then, then you're going to be a beaten child, right? For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. So that is up to you. It depends on how you live and what you do with the leadership of God. All right, so standing in state. You can see it in verse, in verse 2. How shall we that are dead to sin? That's your standing. Live any longer therein. That's your state. How do we apply that? Verse 3. Know ye not that so many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into His death? The point He's making, He's he's supporting what He said in verse 2. We're dead to sin. How did we become dead to sin? When we accepted Christ as our Savior, we were baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. And when I'm put into His body, the Bible says we are joined to the Lord. Now that I'm joined to him, what Jesus went through on the cross gets applied to me. It's applied to my being. So part of me is dead and buried together with Christ. And then there's another part of me that is raised again together with Christ. Now we see this in other places in the Bible as well. In Colossians chapter 2, we're going to see it... Uh, in in a week or two as we uh, go through that class. But we, he says, are, we've been baptized into, now notice, not into water. We've been baptized into Jesus Christ. Now, I understand perfectly why people look at these verses and think of water baptism. Because water baptism does draw the picture. It does illustrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But... There is no water in this passage. I believe Paul is talking about a spiritual baptism, the one that took place as as you received Christ. So because you've been put into Jesus Christ or baptized into him, then you are also baptized into his death. You have been made a partaker of his death. Verse 4, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That, now, we're talking about your old man, and we'll see that in verse 6. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father. That's the, the greatness of the Father. Even so, we also should walk in newness of life. So notice at the beginning of verse 4, this is your standing. We are buried with Him, and we've been uh, placed into death. Now, obviously not my soul, not my spirit, but my flesh, my sinful nature. It has died and it has been buried together with Christ. That is a doctrinal fact. That's how God sees you. God, when He looks at you, thank God for this truth. Oh, this is a wonderful truth. When He sees you, when He sees me, He looks at us through Christ, You see, we are in Christ, so He has to look at His Son and see us in Christ. So when He views me, He views me through the lens of what Jesus has done for me. It has been applied to me. So He sees me as dead, buried, risen again. Now the death and burial happened to my old nature. The resurrection, the part of me that's alive, that's my spirit. That's the part of me that was born again. Uh, Let me... I wanted to give you a verse on that, I believe. Let me just check my notes. Oh, no, that verse is gone from me. That's okay. Uh, there's something else I want you to notice in verse 4. So the beginning of it, we're dealing with the doctrinal truth. That's your standing. Now notice the end of it. Even so, we also should walk in newness of life. So that's the state. That's the conditional part of it. Because of this doctrinal truth, we should do the last part. We should walk in newness of life. So now that the old man is dead and buried, ah, that's it. The death and burial. I wanted to mention something else about that. A, a burial, guys, that is a ceremony that provides closure. When you go to the funeral, you could easily just have somebody else take the body away of that loved one or that friend but by going to the funeral and having an actual service and a proper burial, you are providing closure for yourself that that part of your life is now over. Now, I know that there's still some lingering effects, but it helps in, in the process of getting over that so that you can move on. Uh, that is why I believe it is important for somebody to have the ceremony of baptism, of water baptism. Because that water baptism, it is illustrating what has happened to you spiritually. It is a good way to tell everyone and to drive the point home in your own heart, my old life is done. It's gone. It's not only dead, it's buried. Now, when I was in Malawi, I remember them telling me one of the first things that sticks in my mind. When I was there on my survey trip, they said, "Die." you know, Brother Mike, if we don't have enough maize, we can't make uh, ensima. That's like what we know as pop here. We can't make ensima. And if we don't have enzima, eh? we are dead and buried. Dead and buried. My, my first interpreter, he used to always say it like that. Dead and buried. He'd get very, very demonstrative as he talked about that. Not just dead. Dead and buried. You, you don't if if someone's died you don't keep that corpse around you've got to put it out of sight so that you can move on right now that that seems like it goes without saying but when it comes to our old life we need to treat that old life the way or, or based on how god sees it he sees it as dead and buried i don't need to be carrying around the temptations for my flesh i don't need to be carrying around those those lust putting myself in proximity of it so that I might fall. I need to stay as far away from that stuff as I can. Dead and buried, put it far away. And I believe that going through the process of getting baptized in water, it provides that ceremony, that closure, that the old life is gone, that this spiritual truth is being applied. Not only is it true inside, but now it's true outside as well. Notice something also at the end of verse four. The word "should." Now, you can or you don't have to, but I, I've done it in my Bible. I've underlined the word "should" because it really illustrates well the idea of standing in state. Because this is so, you should do this. Notice the the word "should" again at the end of verse six. Henceforth, we should not serve sin. Uh, come down to verse eleven. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead. That reckoning is you you count it to be so. It's the application. So instead of should, he says reckon there. In verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. So you see how that word should keeps popping up. It's the practical application of the doctrinal truth. This is true, so this should also follow. Starting in verse 13, the, the word should doesn't appear anymore, but you do have the word yield that that starts to pop up. In verse 13, you see the word yield a couple of times, a few times there. And then in verse 16, you see the word yield. In verse 19, we see the word yield a couple times again. And the idea is you have a choice uh, to submit to one thing or to the other. And thank God that verse I was trying to remember popped back in my head. So come to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. I knew I had another point to make. It just escaped me for the moment. Colossians 3. I wanted to talk more about being dead and then the burial following that. And then also this verse. Colossians 3. Look at verse 2. Well, let's start at verse 1. The whole thing's good. Colossians 3 verse 1. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God, Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. That's the point I was trying to make earlier. We don't want to have uh, these fleshly lusts affecting us. We want the heavenly things to affect us. We want to set our affection on the heavenly things. Verse 3 For ye are dead. How's that for a statement? For ye are dead. And your life is hid with Christ in God. I love that. That's an amazing truth. Now, we, When we look at ourselves, right? We get up in the morning, you look in the mirror, you don't see yourself through those through the lens of that verse, right? Not with your physical eyes. You have to know what God said about your body, your spirit, your soul, <clears throat> and then take that doctrinal truth and live it out. You need to remind yourself. I don't know if you're the kind of person that uh, hangs up sticky notes like with little motivational messages or reminders of what to do. Uh, I've done it on occasion, but I, I'm, generally I don't do that. But you know, wouldn't that be something to put a sticky note on the mirror and when you wake up in the morning you see it there, you're dead. <laughs> it may not be the motivational thing that a lot of Christians are looking for, but it's a healthy reminder. Part of you died when you accepted Christ. And you need to treat it as if it's dead. That flesh is dead. You're dead. Your life is hid with Christ in God. And that's a wonderful truth. I've been put into Christ and Christ is in God. That is safe. That is secure. What a wonderful truth. He says, come back to Romans 6 now. That truth, part of me is dead. Part of me has been raised again. That's my spirit. It has been born again. I need to apply it. We should walk in newness of life. Verse 5, For if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death. Now, physically, I haven't died yet. But in a spiritual way, I have. That old nature got crucified and buried. If we've been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection. Now, this works in two ways. According to verse 4, we're talking about the daily application. Paul's saying, now that I've been saved, part of me is dead, part of me is raised again, then I'm going to be a new person. In Christ, right, old things are passed away, all things become new. I'm a new creature. However, I believe that this verse extends even further. It's not just a spiritual truth that my spirit has been born again, but one day my body is going to be fixed, either through a resurrection or through a, a change, right? Because not everybody's going to die. It's a strong possibility, amen, that we are the generation that Paul spoke of when he says, we which are alive and remain. But even that group, we this mortal is going to put on immortality. So because I have partaken of the death and burial That part of the gospel has been applied to me. My old man is gone in the eyes of God. It's buried. Now, both the spiritual truth of a new life and the physical truth of a new body, it is applicable to me. In verse 6, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. All right, now just take a look at your body real quick. Just, Just take a look. You see any nail prints? Just look down at your feet. Hey, Amen. I, I, I'll let you in on a secret. I teach. I I I have on a proper outfit, but I, I I'm in my office in my slippers or flip-flops or whatever you call these things. <laughs> my comfortable shoes. If I look down at my feet, there's no nail prints. Right? I'm not hanging on a cross. But Paul said... That the old man is crucified with him. Remember what he said in Galatians 2? I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Now, when I look at my flesh, you know what my flesh says to me? How can that be true? That can't be right. The Bible says you're crucified, but you don't look crucified. You don't act crucified. Look, the body's still moving. You still feed it. It's Dr. Ruckman used to tell us all the time that he'd have this, this conversation with his flesh all the time. He'd, he'd look... He'd say, there you are. I can see you right there. He said, there's the enemy. And, and and I'm sure you've experienced this to a certain extent. We have this inner conflict. We look at these verses and we say, okay, flesh, you're dead. The Bible says you're dead. God sees you as dead. I'm going to treat you as dead. And then the flesh says, but I'm not dead. Look at me. I'm still moving. I'm still talking. I still have appetites. I still have needs. And you say, no, no, but God said you're dead, but I'm not dead. Look at me. I'm still here. And You say, man, that that kind kind of drives you crazy. Yes, sometimes it does. Sometimes it does. But this is where you have to yield to God and say, okay, God, I'm going to walk by faith and not by sight. I don't see any nail prints. I don't see a cross, but you said it so. And I trust your word more than I trust my eyes. I trust your word more than I trust my own human emotions and feelings. And if you said I'm dead, I'm going to live like it. Now, let me ask you this. When somebody dies, right? And I'm not trying to make light of that situation. I'm just trying to illustrate the fact. You, you do not go to the graveyard day after day and try to run errands for a corpse. You don't go to the graveyard and say, Grandma, can I bring you something? Uh, what can I do for you today? You, I understand you might go to, just as a memorial, just to remember that person. And please, I'm not condemning that at all. Like I said, I'm not trying to make light of of that situation. But you understand my point. If someone's passed away, we do not continue to run errands for them. We do not continue to serve them. Dead and gone. You should no longer be serving the flesh. You should no longer be checking with your flesh. What do you want? What can I bring for you? What can I put around you? What, what do you need now? That part of you is dead. This is where Galatians 5 verse 17 becomes very real. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary, the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. Right? Don't, don't you feel that on a daily basis? Paul says the doctrinal truth, knowing this, this is what I know. So here comes the standing, that our old man is crucified with him. Now here comes the state, that the body of sin might be destroyed. I can crucify the flesh. Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him take up his cross, deny himself daily, right? Deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. It daily has to be applied, even though doctrinally I'm always crucified with him. He says that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. I need to take that doctrinal truth and apply it. Verse number 7, here comes the standing again. For he that is dead is freed from sin. So, now that that part of you has died, you no longer have to be a slave to that that part, it's, it's done, right? You, you no longer have to fulfill His wishes, His will, His orders. It's done. It's time to move on. Time to act like it. Verse 8. Now, if we be dead with Christ, that's the doctrinal truth. That's the uh, standing. Here's the state. We believe that we shall also live with Him. It is possible to live that new life. Because I'm spiritually alive, I'm connected to, to Christ, joined to Him. So that, that my spirit now has eternal life. He that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. And also, looking into the future, that physical resurrection is also going to be true. We believe that one day He'll resurrect us, physically fix us. Verse 9, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over Him. Now, Paul is going to use Christ's death, burial, and resurrection illustrating that once he rose from the dead, that's it. Death is no longer the it can no longer affect Jesus. The same is true for me doctrinally. Doctrinally. Now that I'm saved, death cannot happen to my spirit. It is joined to the Lord. And it has eternal life. It is born again. It has been raised from that spiritual death. Remember this in Ephesians 2 verse 1? We were dead in trespasses and sins. right? But now I've been raised spiritually. So death hath no more dominion there. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 3, He that is born of God cannot sin. Because it, the seed remains in him. So that part of me is incorruptible. Once you physically resurrect, or if the rapture happens, you get an incorruptible body, an immortal body. You'll never have to worry about death again. So when God infuses life into a part of you, death hath no more dominion over it. Now, your flesh, your sinful nature, it is dead and buried, your, but your flesh has not been given a new life yet. right? Only your spirit. So that part of you is safe and secure and, and eternally connected to Christ. Your flesh, on the other hand, it's still waiting for the rapture to come and it will be saved by hope. The body will be redeemed or fixed at that point. This is something we're going to cover in Romans chapter 8 in greater detail, so I'll save, it, save more comment for then. In verse 10 it says, For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. When Christ died, he only died once. After he rose from the dead, he did not have to fear physically dying again. Now, let's work this through. I, part of me, has died and was buried. That can only happen once. The idea of getting saved, and then getting lost, and then getting saved, and then getting lost, doesn't seem to be consistent with what Paul is teaching here. If I understand it correctly, Jesus died once, and then when he raised, he lived unto God. And that's, that's, the, doc- that's the historical fact of it. That's the doctrinal fact of it. I believe this, the same is true of us, that once we have died with Christ and buried... That is a permanent truth, unchangeable. Now, the practicality of it, if whether or not that's applied, that's a different story. But the standing will always remain. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. When God raised his son from the dead, that was for God's purposes. That wasn't just simply to reward Jesus and to help him on an individual basis. But through his resurrection, God is fulfilling an, a greater purpose... That is bringing people back back to Him, being able to reconcile people. The same should be true of us. If I've been saved, now I should live unto God's purposes. God didn't save me just for me. He saved me so that He could work through me and be. A, I should be a vessel unto His use, unto His purposes. Verse 11, likewise. So using Christ's situation now... How do we apply it? Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. Now, think about this. Likewise reckon ye also. Count it as so. When you reckon it, you count it as so. Reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. But wait a minute. In, in verse uh, 7, he, he said, He that is dead is freed from sin. In verse 3 I've been baptized into his death. So if I if I am dead, why would Paul say now reckon yourselves to be dead? But I am. This again illustrates so well standing versus state. Paul is saying because you are dead, now act like it. Count it so in your daily life. Reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the next time you feel your flesh kicking up and having that conversation saying, but I want, but I want, but I want, but I want, you can just look it square in the eye and say, you're dead. I had. I was at your funeral. We properly put you away. I told everybody that you were gone and that I'm living for God. I'm alive unto Him. I, my life, it, He gave me life, so I owe Him my my all, Verse 12, again, it's going to be very practical speaking of our state. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Don't let sin be your master. Why, it's dead. Now, if you reckon it so, it's not going to rule over you. If you yield to it, however then you are allowing sin to continue to lead you, which doesn't really make sense when you look at things through God's eyes. But you can see that it's still possible because Paul is telling them, now don't let that happen. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. That sinful nature is still present and will be until the day, I want to say until your last day on earth. Right, whether that's through death or the rapture, one or the other, until God fixes this body, you're going to struggle with sin. We all have to daily apply the truth of the gospel, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. It's a powerful message. It doesn't just save our soul. It fixes our everyday life if we apply it, if we apply it. Uh, look with me in verse 13. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto, unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Now the word yield, I, when I used that word, I think the first time that I ever really encountered the word seriously, that I paid attention to it, is, was in driving school. Right. When I was 15 years old in America, we you can get a a driver's permit at the age of 15 and then a license at age 16. So when I was 15, I went to driving school and we went over all the road signs, much like you would find in any driving school. And of course, we learned the yield sign. So when you yield, you give the right of way to another driver. Now, depending on the situation, right, it could be a stop sign. It can be at a four-way. It can be at a roundabout. Whatever the case is, you let the other person go. You give them the right to go first. Now, do you see how that can apply here? When you yield to God, what you're doing is saying, God, I'm giving you the right to go in front of me, to lead me. When you come to the crossroads of life and you have sin on one side and God on the other, now they're obviously going in completely different directions, right? You don't want to yield to sin and say, okay, I'll just follow after you. You yield unto God. Give right of way to God and say, you can have the rights for my life, you can rule over me. Verse 14 For sin shall not have dominion over you now the way this is worded right this is a doctrinal statement that he's he's making sin shall not have dominion over you. Well ultimately that's the case. sin is not going to win ultimately ultimately. if you yield to it it can win temporarily right But if if you look at this through the longer lens in the, in the big picture, Sin shall not have dominion over you. We saw in verse 9, death hath no more dominion. Now that word dominion, if you look at it in the Greek, the Greek word for Lord is kurios, kurios. And the word for dominion, it's a derivative of that. It comes from the same root word in, in Greek. So you can think of it as sin and death no longer are the lords of your life. Sin is not your ultimate lord. It's not your ultimate master. Now, if you yield to it, it can be an underlord for the moment. But ultimately, in the long run, sin shall not have dominion over you. Why? You're no longer under that system that contains sin. Look, you can see it in the end of verse 14. For ye are not under the law, but under grace. So here, I don't know if you want to map it out like this. I, I, I would... If we were in a classroom right now, I'd draw it out on a board for you. But uh, let me see if I can just explain it if you want to write it down like this. There's two systems at work here. The system of the law, system of grace. We've talked about that a few times. You can have law, right? first level. And then second level, the law brings rebellion, sin, and bondage. Right? Law leads to rebellion, sin, bondage. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, the strength of sin is the law. Because our sinful nature, all it wants to do is offend God. It wants to rebel. So once it sees what God wants, it is inclined to go the other way. It just repels constantly. So the law brings about rebellion, sin, and bondage. And then the last step of that process in this system is death. So law leads to sin, leads to death. Now, the other system, you have grace. God gives you freely the the, the payment for sin in Christ. Once you accept that, it leads to freedom. It leads to righteousness. That's step two. You can see how it mirrors the other side. The law, rebellion and sin, death. Grace, you get freedom and righteousness, and the end of that is life. Now notice on this side, under grace, there's no sin. There's no sin. You've been justified. You've been made righteous. Your sins have been taken away. You're not under the law. You're under grace. That is a doctrinal statement. That is your standing. That's how it is. And ultimately, sin will not have dominion over you because you're under the system of grace. Now once you look at that, you go, wait a minute. Hmm. Well, that means that if I temporarily yield to the flesh, God's grace is just going to abound, and He's going to cover that sin because Christ already paid for it. So doesn't that mean I can do whatever I want? <laughs> Paul knew that our sinful nature would take us down that path. So he gave us verse 15. What then? Shall we sin? See, You see what he's doing. Because of this doctrinal truth, what should the next practical step B: shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace God forbid that's not how you apply that truth now that we have been made free we, should, we are free to serve God we are able to love others we studied this in Galatians 5 verse 13 is a good verse to go with this so obviously this is not to be abused that is not the proper use of that system of grace In verse number 16, he says, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness? So in the moment, whoever you yield to, temporarily, that person, that thing, it is your master for the moment. Now remember, ultimately, the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're saved, he is your Lord. Ultimately. And sin and death will not have dominion over you. Ultimately. But in the moment, in the moment, even though you are joined to Christ, you can be yielding to sin. Now this, it speaks to the question of what about somebody who intentionally keeps doing something wrong? Is it possible for a Christian to do it? Possible? Yes. Yes, it is. Should it happen? Absolutely not. And there are all sorts of of, uh, punishments, there are sorts of ramifications and consequences that comes to a child of God who goes down that path. But is it possible? Yes, because the sinful nature is still in there. Now, let me illustrate it with this. In James 4, verse 4, matter of fact, if you want to turn to it, rather than quote it, I'd like for you to see it. James 4, verse 4. It says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, Hmm. know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. You say, wow, Brother Mike, that's talking about a lost man. Hmm. You know what the Bible says in Romans 7, right where we're studying? Just near there. It talks about how we're married to Christ. We're going to study it next week, Lord willing. You have been joined together with Him, right? Ephesians 5, as Christ loved the church, we are members of His body. The two have become one. That that is all true of us as saved people. Let me ask you this. Can somebody be married and still cheat on, on on that spouse? Can they do it? Well, yes, it is possible for them to do it. They can have another partner and be married. That's a horrible way to do things. It should not happen. Can it happen? Well, yes, it can happen. But there are dire consequences when it does happen. But just because somebody cheats doesn't mean that the marriage is over, right? That person is now an adulterer. There are consequences to that. You know as well as I do, a husband and wife can be married and be enemies. You know that. I know that. You can love that person and hate that person at the same time. And and give me a little liberty with how I use those words, but there are times, right? You love your kids, moms and dads. Isn't this true? You love those kids and there's nothing that will ever change the fact that you love them deeply. But boy, sometimes you just want to hug their little necks so hard that they feel all that love coming through. You know that it's possible to have a relationship and not be true to that relationship all the time. It can happen, but it shouldn't. It shouldn't. So back in Romans 6 verse 16, whoever you yield to for the moment, you're treating that thing or that person as your master, right? Jesus gave it like this. Now, this, he, he narrowed it down in this case, but you cannot serve God and mammon, right? You, you, you can't have two masters. So at, at any one point in time, depending on who you're listening to, that's your master for the moment. Verse 17, but God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. So somebody came to the Romans, preached to them, not just the death, burial, and resurrection, but that form of doctrine. So I am assuming that what they heard was the whole plan. That when Christ saves you, the Holy Spirit comes in, begins to work in you, and conform you to the image of Christ. And that process... Happens slowly but surely in your life until the day of the resurrection when the process is completed with a physical outward change. They believed that doctrine. And Paul is is thanking God because he knows what a difference that doctrine of the gospel and everything that's included with that plan, he knows what a difference it has made in their lives. Now, I hope that somebody can thank God for the difference in your life that the gospel has made. But it was certainly true in this case. In verse number 18, he says, "...being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness." Now, notice he's making a historical statement. He's saying, overall, generally, within the Roman church, you guys used to have these sinful, wicked lives... But now that you're saved, you've become servants unto righteousness. He's making a general observation about how the gospel and all the truths connected to it have affected their life. In verse number 19, he's going to give us a very practical illustration. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. Notice, infirmity is a shortcoming. He says... I'm going to use a very carnal illustration because it is something you can relate to. (laughs) We all, even though these people, right, generally speaking, they're servants of righteousness, they still have a sinful nature, so they can relate to what Paul's about to say. He says in the middle of verse 19, For as ye have yielded your members, servants to uncleanness, and to iniquity unto iniquity... Notice that. You know what sin does? Sin leads to more sin. Iniquity unto iniquity. It's like drinking salt water. You just want more, more, more of it. He says at the end of the verse, even so now yield, there it is again, your members, servants to righteousness unto holiness. So the more you do right, the cleaner the life gets. It just gets better and better. By the way, the code for tonight the attendance code, degree students, Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Luke 9, 23. So the illustration that Paul's giving in verse 19, very practical. It's a carnal illustration. He's, he's speaking after the manner of men, but it's, it gets the job done. He says, look at how much effort you put in to your sinful life. Now take that effort... That you put into that, the way that you gave yourself to sin, and now give yourself to righteousness with that much zeal and passion. You just think about your own past. I, for me, and and I think this is why Paul worded it the way he did. I don't like to think about all the horrible things I did, and I'm not asking you to go over them in detail, right? Just give it a quick glance if 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 that'll help. But just I, I can think in my mind when I. When I think about my past, I'd stay up late, right, to the wee hours of the morning, doing some stuff that I'll forever regret. I would drive far. I would spend a lot. I'd stay up late. I'd, I'd, I'd watch things. I'd read things. I'd spend time with a certain crowd, right? I, I would, I would affirm their behavior by partaking of it by enjoying it. And then I think about all the effort I put into sin. And now when I... I remember after I got saved, it hit me one night. I was sitting at my desk studying and I lost track of time. I'd been saved for about two months and I just learned what a concordance was. I think... Yeah, I have one on the, on the shelf there. And this was before, you know, you could just look it up in the phone on, on an app. I had the concordance open on the desk and I was studying, I think the resurrection or something, but I I was going through that night. I lost track of time. I had to go to work the next day. It was 2 o'clock in the morning. I'd started studying at about 9 or 10 and I was still going. I was so into it that I lost track of time. I remember back in the day before I got saved, right? I got saved when I was 20. I had a few nights where I lost track of time. All of a sudden, you look down you go, Oh, man i got to get home or all of a sudden the sun's coming up. There was one night after I... I this was three or four months after I got saved. I got down on the floor with my pastor to pray. And we started praying, I don't know, maybe about 10, 11 o'clock, something like that. Before I knew it, the sun was up. It was 5 in the morning. We had prayed straight through the night. And you know what a blessing that was. All those days, all those nights that I lived for sin... And now, to get to spend time doing something for God, I want to make sure that I give God more effort than I gave my sin. I hope the same is true for you. In verse 20, he says, For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. Just reminding them, reminding them, that in that past life, right, before they got saved, in their B.C. days, right before Christ came into their life. They didn't have the option of serving God. They were a slave to their sinful nature. He says, Gu- guys, don't forget that you have a new opportunity. You actually have another master to choose from now. Before you got saved, you had nothing to do with righteousness. God wasn't in your life. Verse 20 For when you were the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. And then he brings this point home. What fruit had ye then in those things, whereof you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. He says, now just think about it. When you were doing those things, where did it lead you to? Were they satisfying? Were they fulfilling? Did it get you to a good place? Or did it lead to a bad place? The end of those things is death. He says, guys, the path you were on, you were headed for destruction. You were on a path of spiritual death, right? You were spiritually dead. But it was ending, it was going to end up in, in an ultimate and eternal death. Physical death, yes, included as well. What fruit had you then in those things where you are now ashamed, right? That, and that's why I speak about my past the way I do. I never want to brag about those things that I did. I do remember, right, that the outcome, man, in the moment it seemed fun. There's, there's pleasure in sin for a season, but uh, be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. If you sow sin, you're going to reap corruption. You're going to reap eventually death. He says in verse 22, but now being made free from sin, doctrinal fact about these people, and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness, and the end everlasting life. now you got to go back to that system. grace leads to freedom and righteousness, which eventually leads to eternal life. Now, I should say immortality right eventually, uh, even in that second step we we understand that we are alive now, but he's saying he's just pointing out to these guys where God brought them from to where they are now. He says, guys, before you got saved, all you could do was sin and it led to death. And now that you're saved, the fruit, the the consequence of this is righteousness, holiness. And the end, not only do you get to experience immortality, but even now you can lay hold on eternal life. You get to really get a hold of, of what God's given us. There was something else I wanted to mention about that, but it's slipping me now. Let's just look at verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. Now he's, he's going to conclude, I believe, on a, making a doctrinal statement. The wages of sin is death. That's the way that process works. Law brings sin, brings death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So there's grace which leads to the fruits of holiness, righteousness, freedom, and that eternal life. That is the final step in that process of living forever with God. Now, uh, that's a nice summary for what he's given throughout this chapter, that sin leads out this way and and grace leads you in a different direction. All right, that's, I believe, like I said, there's one other thing I think is slipping my mind, but it's going to have to just remain on the sidelines for now. That's all I have for you tonight. Uh, if you have any questions about the lesson, please feel free. Uh, to email me, send me a message, call, however you'd like to take care of that. I'd be more than happy to help. I really appreci- appreciate you guys tuning in tonight. Uh, please don't forget about the Romans exam if you haven't written it, and the Galatians exam study up, and make sure that you get that done before the 29th. Uh, moms and dads, tomorrow night, 6 o'clock, for the kids. And then this Tuesday, even though, students, it's not on the calendar, uh, we are going to take advantage of this opportunity of doing live streams. We're going to have class this Tuesday. So 6 o'clock, we'll have Matthew class. All right, if you would, bow your heads with me, and we'll finish in a word of prayer. Lord, thank you tonight for allowing us to cover, uh, I believe, uh, uh, maybe not the deepest chapter, but such an important chapter. Please, Lord, I I pray that You'd help us to apply the Gospel, to apply the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ in our daily lives. Lord, we want to see things the way You see them and treat them the way You see them. Help us to walk by faith and not by sight. Lord, we want to live unto You. So tonight, Father, help us to yield Here's our members. Use our hands, our mouths, our feet, or whatever you can use from us, God. It's yours. You're certainly worthy of it. Thank you for setting us free from that horrible master of sin. Thank you so much for the privilege of having you as our ultimate Lord, our master. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. I pray that you please... Help these students to take in this, uh, this teaching tonight. Let the seed fall on good ground. And let it bring forth fruit, fruit unto you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Folks, thank you so much. And Lord willing, we'll see you again, or I'll, you'll see me again very soon.